For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. From New York City, this is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that we have not discussed in length and one that is uh, intriguing in its own right is the topic of future archaeology. What will future archaeologists be interested in? How do they go about selecting topics for investigation? And how do we put future archaeology in perspective, given what we know and where we think we're going? We have not dealt with this topic extensively. I have noticed, however, that Within the archaeology community, there's an increasing curiosity about how we do things in the future and going forward, in part, I think, because of advances in the past decade in technology and our ability to change the way in which archaeology is not only done, but also of how it's thought and how the perspectives have changed on what it is that we do. My guest today is uh, Dr. Rebecca Graff, who is a historical archaeology and an assistant professor of anthropology at Lake Forest College in Illinois. Her research focuses on 19th and 20th century urban archaeology in the United States, and in particular in the uh, cultural history and archaeological developments in the city of Chicago. She uh, received her PhD from the University of Chicago in 2011, and she has a particular interest in the 1893 Chicago's World's Fair, sort of as an entree into looking at archaeology from the perspective of the reality that existed a hundred years ago and especially from the World's Fair which provides a unique window on what people were doing, dressing, acting and how material culture was in fact uh, utilized and implemented at that particular point in time. Uh, Dr. Graff, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So let's start with your interest in the World's Fair and how you view that as sort of an entree into the type of work that you do. Well, you know, it's something that I came to in a sort of roundabout way. Um, I went to University of Chicago for graduate school and 
found out at a actually at a department party for the anthropology department that the building we were um, having our, our wine and cheese in was actually on the midway. My, one of my professors said, 100 years ago, this was the center of the world, where, because that's where the um, 1893 World's Columbian Exposition took place. And I'm, I'm from Los Angeles originally, but my family is actually from Chicago. So I knew a little bit about that there had been fairs, but I hadn't realized that I was literally going to school across the street from this event, um, and then quickly found that it hadn't been explored archaeologically. So I decided that I wanted to do that. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Chicago, the Midway is a very, very broad expanse of green and grass and separates uh, a couple of na- oh, two, two neighborhoods in, uh, in metropolitan Chicago. I went to the University of Chicago, had no idea that this was the case, I, I have to admit. And I am fascinated by that. And why don't you tell us a little bit about how you found out, well, you found out about the Midway, and did you do excavations over there? I didn't because um, in, since the fair took place, so the Midway was is actually the term that we get Midways at different fairs and um, gatherings these days, where you usually have sort of entertainment, roller coaster rides and um, food, is comes from this particular Midway because it was this uh, strip of land called the Midway Plaisance that was between uh, the connected Jackson and Washington parks in Chicago. So this was the area of the World's Fair that had all of the, um, had the Ferris wheel, the world's first Ferris wheel was there, and the, you know, the village, the Egyptian, the street in Cairo, and some of the other sorts of entertainments that actually made the fair financially successful. But in the 20th century, there had been a lot of landscaping of that particular area, so I didn't think it was as useful to explore archaeologically as the rest of Jackson Park, another, you know, almost 700 acres. Um, However, when they were putting in um, a skating rink that's now there, in, I believe, 2001, they found the footing for the Ferris wheel, this large piece of concrete. So there is some stuff there, but probably um, less than in Jackson Park just because of the the types of re-landscaping that have gone forward. So would you say that you looked at it as a touchstone for the times, uh, because that was uh, what we call what was called then the gay nineties. Uh, is that how you got into it, or how did you uh, how did you look at it, sort of, as a window into into the past and 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 as a touchstone for what you're doing? Well, I have sort of two ways I came at it um, that maybe make sense now. At the time, I really just was so interested in the, that this big thing that 27 million people had come to the, this one little place. Um, for the six months that it was open, and that was in a, at a time when the population of the United States was, you know, not more than much more than fifty million. Um, but it's also a place where anthropology, as an academic discipline, gets a lot of its start. We have people like Franz Boas, the father of anthropology, working um, to create and collect exhibits for the anthropology de- building there. Um, a lot of archaeological exhibits were there, too, so in lots of ways it was constitutive of, of archaeology as an academic discipline. The Field Museum's collection, um, the, the collection that started the Field Museum, which was, of course, the Field Columbian Museum, it used to right. actually be there, comes from the World's Fair. And so it's very important in my discipline. I also learned, after I decided on this as my field site, I was talking to my grandfather, and I found out that his father, my great-grandfather, when he emigrated to the United States, um, I think around 1891, 
from Russia, his first one of his first jobs that he got was digging dish, ditches on the Midway um, in preparation for turning it into a fair site. So I literally had of a you know an ancestor who was doing the same sort of archaeological work, but for a different purpose, same sort of moving dirt um, that I ended up doing you know a hundred years later. So I think those two strands were the things that got me kind of excited about that. I also find Chicago to be a really fascinating place. Um, I came right from the Bay Area. I was a student at Berkeley where there's a lot of um, urban archaeology. In San Francisco, I had been working with um, other, Barb Voss and other people. I was surprised how little was being done in Chicago overall. So I had wanted to do a project that engaged with the city of Chicago and the birth of the city in that way. So the fair was so important, putting Chicago on the map. Um, so that was another thing that sort of drew me to that. And I guess that one of the interesting elements of that is you can sort of look at um, World's Fairs as sort of, uh, I won't say museum pieces, but certainly they were uh, places where you saw trends. Mm -hmm. How were trends going to, uh, trends in fashion, trends in art, progress, science? And you can now look at it 100 years, well, it's now it's more than 100 years yeah. later, about 120 years later, and you can see exactly what caught on and what didn't. And, and uh, is that one of the uh, elements that you looked into? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so many things that are part of our daily lives are things that were debuted for the fair. Um, Things or, or, or invented around that time, and then the, the Chicago Fair was the first place that these products were debuted with a captive audience there to create a taste and desire for the product. So things like zippers, um, a lot of food products, of course, were Vienna beef hot dogs, uh, Cracker Jack, those sorts of things. Um, things like part of what my work is on um, turns out to be because this is what we found archaeologically is the infrastructure. So the idea of how transformative in daily life it would be to have um, a, a toilet, a flush toilet and have plumbing and electricity. Um, these were all things that were on display at the fair that you can also experience and they're things that are with us right now. And so at that time they were so new and it's, it's some of these are the same things that we, you know, are experiencing every day. So the fair was a real starting point for a lot of things that we, we still have now. What's interesting, especially in what you've been saying, is exactly what survived, what didn't. Were there trends that were real? They must have been because this was the gateway to the 20th century. What are the big trends that uh, actually caught on and that weren't well known at that time that eventually took off? Because that was a critical period in American history. I mean, communication, the automobile, cinema, radio, all those developments occurred at around that time. Right. I mean, it was probably one of the most pivotal periods in American history. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, and the fair itself is could be considered, it's sort of like an encyclopedic display of everything. So anything that was in the world was supposed to be in dis on display at some point in one of the over 200 buildings that made up the fair at that time. So, you know, um, I'm working with a colleague on an article about some of the foodways at the fair and sort of the, the hygienic preparation of food and making people used to the idea of, you know, buying cuts of meat um, that are pre-cut pre and pre-butchered. Um, these sorts of things, a lot of, they had demonstrations of different um, kindergartners, uh, kindergartens, they had uh, demonstrations of different sort of school techniques. So anything you can think of was there for the taking, and it seems like so many of them 
are with us right now. It's hard to, to say what what didn't at that point. I actually haven't looked at it in that way, which would be really interesting to see what are the things that didn't catch on as much. But, I mean, one of the buildings there, the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building, was the largest building in the world um, at the time, and it was full of exhibits, and that was only one of, you know, over 200. So you can just imagine um, you would, I would need you know, a decade to just enumerate everything that caught on from then. But that was definitely a real pivotal period um, to think of sort of emerging technologies that are now parts of our daily lives, especially. And as, as you, you know, as one thinks about it, it was such a very, very important period in, in history. How did you go about getting your information? Um, I had a, I, I did a lot of archival work to begin with. Um, I had a previous short-term career as an archivist, and I love working in the library, so I was doing a lot of work um, reviewing everything from uh, historic maps of the sites, and I did some work at the Chicago Park District who owns and runs the site. Um, I read diaries when I could find them. Um, I also would spend some time reading novels that people wrote um, contemporaneously from after having visited the fair that they wrote novels about it to try to get a sense of what things seemed important to experience. Um, I read guidebooks. A lot of these things have been digitized, which is wonderful, so you could do it off-site, but um, just a lot of times sort of immersing myself in some of the, the writings of the day. And then, of course, the World's Fair, um, especially the Chicago Fair, there's a huge literature on fair, so I was able to go to that literature as well, especially work by Barbara Rydell to kind of make sure that I was seeing the larger connections than just Chicago, but the world affairs in general, the, that, um, the international exhibitions that became a thing in the 19th century. One tends to think that uh, those types of exhibits and those types of monumental events, and you had indicated that so many, that, that 27 million people were, were at the event, that this was probably the biggest one to, until that time. Is that true? Um, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head how it compared in terms of total visitors to the um, 1889 Paris ex- exhibition, um, but it certainly was one of the largest. Um, they just kept getting grander and grander that you had to outdo the previous one. So I think attendance-wise it was pretty equal to that, but definitely the largest one in the United States, the fair that had been... Um, 1876 Philadelphia Centennial Exposition had been the only sort of larger one sort of in comparison to Chicago. There had been many fairs in the United States. They were a a popular thing. There had been ones in Chicago, but as far as close to the same scale, it would be Philadelphia um, and Paris. Mm -hmm. And we'll be back with this very fascinating discussion on future archaeology and the significance of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair with my guest, Dr. Rebecca Graff, right after these words. We'll be right back. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. 
Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest on today's program is Dr. Rebecca Graff, who is doing some very intriguing research in future archaeology based on the uh, Chicago World's Fair of 1893, which was a milestone event and essentially was a segue into the 20th century, and at that time was was probably one of the most significant displays of uh, what the future might look like in a very, very major way for the 20th century. I'd like to ask you if you could expound a little bit on the relationship between the fair and the archaeology that you do and the connection between that. Absolutely. Well, we know the fair was really a constitutive part of American history and that it was a hugely attended and popular thing that happened for these six months. But whether or not that would have an archaeological signature was something I was interested in exploring. Um, most archaeological work would be at sites that would have a longer-term habitation rather than these sort of short-term events. Um, and the site being uh, you know, basically a city created for a single summer was on a really massive grand scale instead of a sort of modest scale. And so it sort of inverts the typical um, lenses of archaeological research. So I really wanted to see if there was going to be anything. I was pretty sure there would just because there, there would be People are messy and people leave things, but I didn't know how much. But I really want to say, what can we understand about what the methods of archaeology can give us um, by looking at the short term? And what did you find out? I mean, how did you go about actually bridging this and, and, and doing Well, that? I did a survey um, in 2007 where I sampled four different sites in Jackson Park. So not, still not on the Midway, but the Jackson Park um, where, that I had settled on after reviewing um, both satellite imagery and some archival maps of the area. I picked them for various reasons. Um, I picked a site by the North Pond, which is right where the, today's Museum of Science and Industry is, which was um, during the fair was the uh, Art, Palace of Fine Arts. 
um, because that had been a section of the park, Jackson Park, that had been developed before it had been uh, made into the fair. So it was used uh, pre-1893. I picked an area um, where um, the Japanese pavilion, the Ho'oden, had been um, on Wooded Island because that was a part of the fair that was extant till the 1940s when it was burnt down in a fit of anti-Japanese sentiment. Uh-huh. And um, I picked an area that where the women's building would have been because that was the gateway to the midway and an area in the far southeast part of the fair grounds that um, housed both the um, garbage area and also the anthropology building. I thought that was an interesting <laughs> combo of things. Um, so I, I sampled those um, with shovel tests. We did about 150 of them um, and then put that information after I did the analysis looking for where we had uh, big deposits of 19th century materials. So um, after looking at that and setting up a field school actually through the University of Chicago, um, I settled on site around the North Pond because we had high signatures of 19th century materials. It was not too hard to get from uh, campus where my students were, and it was also near the nicest bathrooms in Jackson Park, which was good for my field crew. So it, it seemed no to question. be the perfect spot. Yeah. So, uh, so you said you you originally, and, and this is something that I think a lot of people be interested in because very often uh, folks ask archaeologists how they know where to dig. It's mm-hmm. one of the most basic questions that uh, people ask me, certainly when when I, I get involved in a project. Um, and you had mentioned that you looked at satellite imagery and uh, remote sensing. And I assume that you also had a reasonably accurate map of the layout of the World's Fair. Yes. I mean, the majority of maps I had, um, because the fair took longer to complete, there were certain parts that weren't even complete when it opened. I never had quite the confidence that they were drawn after everything was built, that some were maybe projected. Um, but I did geo-rectify a map um, and looked at them enough that I felt pretty confident that by sampling sort of larger areas, I would at least be getting a sense of, of what was still there, knowing that even if I had the most accurate um, map from that time, that the the area had been turned back into parkland by 1894 and had been um, remade into park over and over again, that whatever signature I saw was also going to show the redevelopment over the years. Um, but definitely looking at the maps, it was it was 700 acres, so I didn't want to even pretend to try to do a random sample. Um, I really wanted to focus in on where there was a greater chance of finding some information. So did you begin by super, superposing the uh, the old maps on top of the contemporary maps? Yes, and- absolutely. And I also, um, as I said, I was really interested in that northern part of Jackson Park because I mm-hmm. wanted, because so much of the story of that area makes it seem like it starts in 1893, where Hyde Park as a, as a city became part of Chicago in 1889. But it had been uh, lived in and developed for since you know the 1850s. Um, so I wanted to. So I read a lot of accounts and I read a lot of the village histories um, and village meetings from that time period to see how, especially that northern part of the park, was being developed and used. So did a lot of focusing down on that as well as as the rest of it. I think uh, part of our listenership would be very intrigued by <clears throat> the ability and the, and the goodness of fit, if you want to call it that, between what you what what the layout of the World's Fair was, what how you went about actually shovel testing or testing in the subsurface in those areas, and whether or not you came up 
with artifacts and material cultural evidence that you should have expected if you superimposed a contemporary map on top, or actually if you superimposed the old map yeah. on top of the contemporary map. There, was there a good correspondence there? Um, you know, there was definitely material in every single of the four loci that I um, did the shovel testing in. There was 19th century material. Um, I was disappointed to not find as much as I had hoped um, at the site where the Japanese pavilion, the Ho'odan, had been, um, only because, again, it had lasted through the 1940s, and I thought there might be a more robust signature. Um, but, you know, in every single area, I would find 19th century nails, I would find bits of plaster, which, of course, is what the buildings from the World's Fair were made of, but of nothing that... Um, so there wasn't actually a huge amount of difference between three of the sites um, versus what I found. So three of the four loci were very similar. The, the site of the Japanese pavilion didn't have quite as much material, but still had some. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> once you did all that work, so you said you put in 150 shovel tests. Is that correct? Yeah, 150. Which is not really a lot. No, it seems a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I know the, that. But. For the first thing I did, but yeah, it, wasn't, it was enough that I, I took that information, I put it into um, Surfer program where I could actually see yeah. where the distributions of the 19th century materials were. And from that, I put, I put eight judgmentally placed um, two-by-two-meter excavation units the following spring. And what did that produce? We found a building from the World's Fair amongst ah. other things. But we found the remains of the Ohio State Building, one of the small buildings from the fair, um, that newspaper accounts, newspaper accounts from the New York Times actually said they threw the pieces of that into Lake Michigan. So here we uh -huh. found it. Um, we also found, you know, uh, infrastructure from the fair because it make, doesn't make sense to tear out everything if you could just bury it. So we found a lot of pipes, sewer, sewer pipes, water pipes, gas pipes, um, and also, you know, materials from that time period, but we also found a lot about how people are using Jackson Park today. Uh, it's a you know heavily used urban park, um, so we found material that showed what picnics um, people were having and children's playing and you know illicit activities as well. So it gave us a lot of information about the fair, but also about what's the park been used for since the fair. And what was the next step in your research? What did you do after you had completed your testing? Well, so after completing the testing, and we knew I knew I wanted to do more larger excavation, and um, I also knew I wanted to do a field school. University of Chicago um, hadn't had a, a local field school, and it's it's something you know that um, some of our local other institutions like DePaul University, Jane Baxter, working there with the Urban Historical Archaeology Program, provide that sort of uh, opportunity to their students, and that was something really important to me as an undergrad, and I, I would had hoped to do that. As well, so as a graduate student, I was able to um, offer a spring semester um, archaeological field school where we would actually do the open excavation because I knew the shovel test only started to tell the story, and I really wanted to do a full excavation. So we started that in the spring of 2008, um, and just put those units where the best shovel test had been. And you came up, obviously, with a more uh, comprehensive picture of what was in the particular locus that you were dealing with, right? Absolutely, and with good stratigraphy and everything. How far down did you go? We went like a meter and a half in some places. We went through the water table in a couple spots. Um, had to keep opening up wider. 
And I assume you got clearance from the city of Chicago to do yes. all of this, of course. Yeah, I had everyone come out, actually, to tell me that I wasn't going to hit any utilities, and we didn't. We hit just all the defunct utilities that they had left over, you know, 100-plus years. Like underground sewer lines and that sort of thing. That was actually the most robust signature of the fair um, was the infrastructure that needed to be made to make it the city of the future. So what we found archaeologically, some of the sort of the sexier things are things like the Ohio building, because to find what was basically the remains of the white city of 1893, like the devil in the white city, the Eric Larson's book, um, we found that. But the thing that actually made the fair such a success was the um, incredible infrastructure that was built as if it was for a permanent city. You couldn't really build sewerage in a temporary way. That's right. It. So we found all of that that showed that it, it made this, the experience of the World's Fair possible um, to show what the future was going to look like by having electricity and good water and good um, gas and, and uh, all these lines. So we found that um, in every single unit that we put in. But we only had one unit that we found a building from, but that was very exciting, of course. Of course, and I guess what, one of the interesting things about World's Fair, and, and I lived through the New York, New York City World's Fair in 1964, is that some of the buildings and some of the structures um, survive into the future and are used in the future. Mm -hmm. um, are there any elements, are there any components of the World's Fair of 1893 that are still functional? Yes, um, the Museum of Science and Industry, which um, was the Field Columbian Museum, which was the Fine Arts Palace, is still extant and in Jackson Park, though it's been completely rebuilt. Of course. Um, actually, and that's a common thing for World's Fairs to leave sort of one building, and often it is the arts building, um, because to be able to borrow great works of art to show at the fair, they usually had to have good fire insurance, so they had to build um, these structures with um, brick and other things that are a little less temporary than the plaster that they built the rest of the structures for. So this building already was favored by being slightly more robustly constructed than the other ones at the fair. And that's still there. Um, in uh, Julius Rosenwald um, of Sears Roebuck actually had seen museums of, of industry in Germany, wanted to do that in the U.S., was in Hyde Park and was seeing the fact that the Fine Arts Palace was abandoned and falling into decay um, after the Field Museum moved to its current location. And so um, he was the person responsible for the fact that this, the Museum of Science and Industry was founded and that the Fine Arts Palace was rehabilitated and remade to um, look very much like how it did and during the fair. Mm-hmm. And we will be back with our special guest, Dr. Rebecca Graff of uh, Lake Forest College in Illinois. After these words, we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. 
Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune in to the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest is Dr. Rebecca Graff, who did a very unique excavation and series of excavations um, in Chicago, um, specifically to look at the remains of the 1893 uh, World's Fair, which was one of the uh, pivotal exhibits that essentially brought in and uh, the 20th century brought the United States into the 20th century. And, of course, there was a lot of technology that was associated with that time, heralding uh, advances in industry, commerce, communication, video, and uh, transportation. And um, Dr. Graff has actually expanded her work in that area and has been discussing um, where that work is going, where her excavations are going, in particular, where we're talking about what you had called, Dr. Graff, the White City. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, and how your work in that particular locus is, uh, is being developed now? Sure. Well, so what I was just talking about before was the, um, the infrastructure that made the World's Fair of 1893 possible, so uh, the systems of pipes um, that fed into the building so that people could have good experiences and actually have, you know, lighting and things. And this is actually um, an important point for sort of the history of electricity where the whole battle between alternating current and direct current gets settled by who gets to run the electricity at this fair, um, which is why we have alternating current. Interesting. But, yeah, so it, it was very important on every level um, for these, these sorts of things. And so we found a lot of that archaeologically, and we somewhat expected to find that. What I didn't expect to find was actually some of the architecture. Um, these are temporary fairs. They're temporary cities. So you can't, uh, you have to build them quick, quickly, and usually you don't want to use the same sorts of materials you would for a more permanent structure. So they ended up using um, plaster material for a lot of the buildings, um, something that was called staff 
uh, that was borrowed uh, from the Paris Exposition. It was supposedly a, a recipe that combined plaster with horsehair and other materials. So they made the structures out of this, um, and they would then they whitewashed it. They painted everything white, so it became known as the White City. It was in a very sort of backwards-looking Beaux-Arts style for most of the buildings, except for um, Louis Sullivan's building, the transportation building that he actually said the uh, architecture of the fair, the program of the fair that um, Daniel Burnham and his architects heralded. Actually, he said set back architecture, you know, 50 years because instead mm-hmm. of looking forward, it looked backwards to uh, classic Greco-Roman design. But these white structures, these very temporary structures with permanent, robust infrastructure were what made the fair um, such a memorable uh, experience for the millions of people who went. One of the questions that I would have is that, obviously, this was we were already into the age of photography. Uh, did you use any photographs from your archived um, collections were they helpful? Did they? Uh, you you were said you were surprised to dig up the White City, but yeah. did you know? Do, were there any reference points that you could utilize to uh, sort of pinpoint where things might still survive? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the photographic record is immense, um, and other scholars have written some books about that. It was closely uh, managed, so the the official so- photography of the fair showed this sort of beautiful, perfect city of the future, often not actually populated by people. Um, Charles <laughs> Dudley Arnold, who is the, fo- the official photographer, often would take the photos very early in the morning. But there are other sort of, you could also pay, I believe it was like $2 to be allowed to bring your camera in. And so people who were budding photographers would bring their cameras in. Um, so there is this, um, a non-professional phot- photographic record as well. So I definitely made use of everything I could find, including, as I said, um, work by um, fair scholars who've already covered some of these things. So when we found these um, plaster columns and urns and volutes from columns uh, buried in a, you know, in a ditch in Jackson Park, approximately where the Ohio building had been, according to our map, we also were able to look at um, archival photos of the Ohio building and actually verify via those photos what we, were, what we had found. Are there surviving plans, architectural plans of that building that you could match up against what you found? I haven't found the plans of that building. I did... Um, have a student of mine who actually lived in Ohio did some archival research in the archives in Columbus for me. Um, that building was not a very important one compared to other buildings, and um, I have a list of what rooms there were in the building and what sort of decorations there were, but I haven't found photographs or a floor plan of that particular building. What other uh, interesting aspects of the white building um, or the white city actually did you find and how uh, how are they articulated and, and, and where would you go with that kind of work? Well, one thing that was especially interesting to me was these small state buildings um, that most of the buildings, the state buildings, every state and territory at the time in the United States was allowed to have a building. They had to fund it themselves to, to build it, to decorate it. They were not supposed to have exhibits in them. Um, the exhibits were in, in the agricultural building or the manufacturer's building or the art palace. So they were, they were sort of essentially clubhouses. So people from, if you were you know, visiting from New York, you would probably go to the New York State Building to see what your sure. state was representing and also to catch up with um, other New Yorkers. So they were places to rest and get away from the excitements of the fair. So I'm very interested in um, trying to turn this dissertation into a book 
um, I'm very interested in sort of that moment in the, in the 19th to 20th century of uh, the, the rapid pace of change that these modern inventions that, were, that you were alluding to brought and how, at least at the fair within these state buildings, people had a space to take sort of a break and a respite from um, an incredibly overwhelming experience in something that looked very familiar. So these buildings also not only didn't have exhibits, they were around the scale of, of, of a large house. So some of the buildings were so immense um, that you could fit like the pyramid of Giza in the Manufacturers Liberal Arts Building. Of course. But, but these small state buildings were like fancy homes. And so it was a place to kind of um, take a break from the imagined future that was on display in the rest of fa- the fair and be in the present. You had mentioned in the break you and I had discussed about future plans for the property and uh, you had also indicated, uh, and, and people certainly from the Midwest know about this, that the Illinois State Museum, Museum was uh, inauspiciously closed recently. I guess it was about a half a year ago, was it? Mm-hmm. This past fall. And uh, you had mentioned that uh, you are trying to salvage something from that. Why don't you discuss that a little bit in detail? Well, sure. So the remains, that the um, archaeological materials that we uncovered and analyzed and curated are now being held at the Illinois State Museum Research and Collection Center. I was very grateful to find a place for them. Um, and right now, that uh, the whole Illinois State Museum, not to mention the Research and Collection Center, and also the associated buildings, um, are cl- it's closed. It's been closed since October 1st by the governor. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It's a really amazing institution, free to the people of Illinois, um, with some amazing scientists, who many of whom have actually uh, retired recently from working there, um, probably earlier than they had planned. So it was very important to me to keep the materials in Illinois and to be at a place where people could access them for future research. And right now, the, that, that future is sort of up in the air. Um, the people who are still working there, um, the unionized curatorial staff are, are taking care of everything. But I, I hope that the budget gets passed um, soon, not only, of course, for the museum, but for all of the, the other sort of human resources that have not been um, covered so that these human services so that we can actually have people come in and, and see the World's Fair materials and have a chance to maybe lend them for exhibit or do some more advanced research on them. So um, it's something that is striking a lot of people in Illinois, but it especially strikes home for me because I was just so thrilled to have um, Terry Martin, the folks at um, ISM, accept the materials. That's a curious. Uh, there obviously have to be uh, assemblages and uh, artifacts from the World's Fair directly, and are they stored? You said they're stored uh, in particular places right now, and they're looking for, for lack of a better word, a permanent home? Well, my things um, are permanently there, which as far as I know is the only archaeological collection of the fair materials. But there are um, huge collections all over of souvenirs from the fair. Um, The Field Museum has them. The Museum of Science Industry has them. Almost every person has some because you wanted to have a souvenir to remind yourself of this experience. Uh, So there's a lot of collections that have materials that relate to this fair in particular, but this is the only one that I'm aware of that actually has archaeological materials. One of the elements that I think is really critical in the type of work that you do in particular is public outreach. What kinds of efforts have been generated in that direction, and is the city of Chicago involved at all 
and helping uh, spread the word of what you're doing and essentially looking at this milestone event in the history of the city as uh, something that should be commemorated or at the very least uh, acknowledged in terms of something formal and right. uh, an exhibit. Do they have that? Do they, are there plans to do that? Um, well, I would say the, sh- the short answer is that we haven't done enough, and that's both on me and I think the city of Chicago. <coughs> um, I started this project as a graduate student, um, only now have a, a position that hopefully will be long-term so that I have that sort of stability to do more. But, um, you know, Chicago is a city that doesn't have a city archaeologist, which, you know, for its size is, is a shame. So we don't have sort of our own infrastructure to make sure that we um, do our excavation when we should keep in compliance with 106 and the, our state version of 106. Um, but also, you know, we don't have, we have some people doing archaeology, but we are just, there's a smaller number than maybe some other American cities where it's not because our, our archaeology is not as interesting or our city history. Um, I have been lucky to partner and to work on partnering some great people. Um, Tim Samuelson, who's a city historian, has been really helpful. Um, I'm now at an institution like Forest College where we received a digital humanities grant from the Mellon Foundation that's allowing me to do some more excavation. Um, I just did excavations this past summer at the Charlie Persky House, which is a site on Chicago's Gold Coast, a house that was um, built 1892 by Louis Sullivan and Frank Lloyd Wright, so contemporaneous with the World's Fair. Um, but, you know, I think it's going to be a, a long process in some ways. I'm, I'm very confused sometimes by why Chicago isn't more proud of um, its archaeological and historic significance. Um, so it's something that is definitely at the heart of all the work I do, making sure we do open houses, making sure we do interviews, making sure that you know, my students talk to people about what they're doing. But it's um, definitely a process that we really need to kick up into higher gear. And we will be back with our final segment on this very fascinating discussion on the World's Fair and its afterglow, if you will, Uh, After these words, uh, we'll be right back. Stay where you are. Thank you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest this evening is Dr. Rebecca Graff, who has done some very intriguing and engaging work uh, in association with the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. She has done some test excavations uh, at the site of the fair, and we have been talking about the after effects of the area in which those excavations uh, took place and where uh, the footprint of the World's Fair is still around. Um, we had been discussing during the break that the Jackson Park area, which is uh, part of that footprint, um, has been rumored and now apparently is more than just a rumor, it may be the site of the Obama Library after President Obama's term expires. And uh, one of two locations uh, in the vicinity have been mentioned as the possible site of the world's of, of the world's fair of the uh, Obama Library, um, Dr. Graf. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and what that means for your work? Yeah, um, absolutely. So again, Jackson Park is poised to be the center of the world for a little while. As when we find out if the Obama Presidential Center and Library is going to be either there or in Washington Park, it's going to be in one of the two. Um, it's just about finding out exactly which one. They've already shown maps of where the proposed site would be within Jackson Park. Um, if it isn't proposed and successfully goes to Jackson Park, of course, um, having proven that there are lots of remains that are interesting and important from 1893 and beyond, um, I would hope that we would have a chance to do some uh, excavation there before the foundations are put in for the presidential center. Um, the area that they're actually planning to put it in, if it does go into Jackson Park, would be a site that I had done some testing in, so I know there's stuff there. It's um, near where the uh, children's building was and some of the other sort of very interesting ones from the fair. So it would be, um, I think, a really nice thing to make sure that we, we checked it out and maybe even incorporate that into some part of the interpretation. Um, this, is a important, this will be an important um, touristic destination if the, the presidential library goes right there, and that's an, it was an important touristic destination in 1893. So that continuity is really nice. Um, I think that doing some archaeology there, especially the site is on the National Register, it would be in the spirit, I think, of, of what the, the presidential center is trying to do as well. I, I think that's a wonderful idea. The, the problem with a lot of that, of course, is that um, when you, you you'll probably engage in some kind of a survey, and they may, of course, opt for preservation in place, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, it could inhibit your ability to do what you want to do. Um, by the same token, it would preserve, uh, the, it would preserve the uh, remnants 
of uh, the old footprint of the World's Fair. Do you have any indication as to which one of those sites it may be, or is that hard to say? It's really hard to say, at least from, from my end. They announced in May uh, 2015 that we would be getting it on the south side of Chicago, since there were some other sites in Chicago that were under consideration. And, of course, earlier on, it was, would it be in Chicago? Would it be in Hawaii? So right. I'm unfortunately not privy to that information, but um, there are people from the uh, Chicago Park District and also this uh, Corporation Project 120 Chicago that's doing work on the South Parks that probably have more information, and I've been very lucky to be in in communication with them. So as soon as the site is chosen um, and revealed, (laughs) I hope I have a chance to speak with some people about getting in there. As I said, we have this wonderful um, Mellon grant here at Lake Forest College that would allow us to do the work, so it would be a cost-free project. Um, We just need to get in there. So we're hoping, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Well, that's a very important element and and certainly something that should be entered into the negotiation when you're saying that that you eventually effectively have funding to do this and that it's not going to cost very much. Um, Clearly, that would be a major talking point and and, and in a sense, a selling point. Are there any other public outreach programs that you foresee um, being part of uh, to the local community about the heritage of that World's Fair footprint? Yeah, I um, had been very lucky to work with members of the High Park Historical Society and the Jackson Park Advisory Council, so some of the local um, chapters of, of people who care in that area. Um, where I try to keep you know connecting with them um, keeping my connections up with people in in Chicago and cultural affairs department at some of the museums. So uh, as soon as I have any word, I definitely um, work to reach out, reach out to different people because I do think that this is something that we need more than just one person or one institution. Um, also, I said my, my colleagues at other um, area schools who do historic archaeology, um, these would be great opportunities to partner to do field schools for all of our students. Um, I think field school is really important. Um, having local field schools for students who can't afford to go abroad but still want to have an experience in doing archaeology is um, very important as well to me. So I would want to incorporate um, an archaeological field school in any of these excavations. Uh, I was going to ask you about that because um, the field school element of this is obviously a fabulous training ground and one where you could essentially demonstrate and teach students of uh, the entire process of of survey, uh, test excavations, mitigations, and uh, processing of artifacts and ultimately analysis of them that eventually turn into a report. So I would hope and it, I'm, I'm saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, that the University of Chicago might be part of that, but that's an entirely yeah. different story. I would, I would hope I'll have to be in touch with them as well, since we certainly did right by them in uh, 2008. We got a lot of nice publicity for the university, and um, we had a great opportunity for our students. So I would hope they would be amenable to that as well. Yeah, it, and it, it, it's such a convenient, it's such a convenient training ground, and and very very relevant. And I think one of the things that you bring up, which is which is very important here, is that um, for that particular period in time, the historic records are fabulous. Yeah, and you're able to match and mix and match and and look at at the archives as a guideline, and then. In another sense, I guess one of the things that you've done is to look at more uh, contemporary methodologies 
and putting together the old methodologies, which is archival work, and uh, contemporary methodologies, which will give you more of a fix on, say, the remote sensing and, 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 and the, the contemporary, very sophisticated mapping tools like yeah. GIS, which would be very, very helpful in trying to develop this. And I think certainly in terms of expanding horizons in archaeological education, it, it sort of would blend past attempts and past methodologies with future methodologies. And hopefully this is a prime example of how these types of approaches can be brought together and uh, treated in a very comprehensive fashion. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing and what you're planning to do in the near future so that we can track your career and developments in, in, in this particular project and beyond. Sure. Well, I'm hoping to start a little bit more work in earnest on a book version of um, both the Jackson Park World's Fair project and some of the work I've been doing at the Charlie Persky House, the uh, 1892 home in Chicago, because I'm really interested. I want to, to write up some of this. I'm right now working with some of my students. Um, I taught a historic uh, artifact analysis lab last semester here, um, working with a few students to get the report done on the Charlie Persky House materials that we excavated um, in 2010 and in 2015. Um, so trying to get a handle on what we have there and look at those connections between that, um, the World's Fair site as a as a large-scale tourist site and having a contemporaneous uh, domestic site and look at the materials there to see how transformative um, the 1890s were for, for people's daily lives. So having those two sites, putting them into conversation is something I'm doing. I'm also looking for other sites to be excavating. As I said, we have this Mellon Grant and we have uh, a desire to do some more archaeology over the city of Chicago. So I hope to be to dig for a long time um, on some projects, um, but especially looking at the 19th century. And on that note, we're going to have to bring this program to a close. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Rebecca Graff of Lake Forest College for, the, for her intriguing work and this wonderful presentation on um, contemporary urban archaeology in Chicago. And thank you so much for participating in the program. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And until uh, this time next week, this is Joe Schildenrein saying the past is the gateway to the future, and we will talk to you again next week at this time. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schildenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.